The fact remains that the United States still struggles mightily to shake off the remnants of legally sanctioned discrimination in voting, and the Voting Rights Act has been the most valuable weapon in that fight. You're listening to Practically Speaking. I'm Audra Wilson. On August 6, 1965, President Lyndon Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act. The act is considered to be the most successful piece of civil rights legislation ever adopted by Congress. It affirmed the 15th Amendment's guarantee that no person shall be denied the right to vote on account of race or color. The main thrust of the act was to apply a nationwide prohibition against voting practices and procedures that denied or infringed upon the right to vote. The act also contained special enforcement provisions aimed at those areas of the country with the most discriminatory past, including the southern states of Texas, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina, and Virginia, as well as Alaska, Arizona, and parts of seven other states. It required those jurisdictions to receive preclearance from the United States Attorney General or federal judges before making any changes to their election or voting laws. But for several years, many have questioned whether we still need the Voting Rights Act. The United States Supreme Court dealt with this very question. In June of 2013, in the case Shelby County versus Holder, the Supreme Court struck down Section 4B, a key provision of the Voting Rights Act. Section 4B mandated federal oversight of any changes of voting procedure in states that had a history of hindering voting for blacks and other people of color. Writing for the majority opinion, Chief Justice Roberts was concerned that we continue to rely upon a formula developed by Congress based on discriminatory patterns from 40 years ago. The court believed that this formula did not take into consideration how much our country has changed. The famously conservative Justice Antonin Scalia was far less diplomatic in his take on the case and went so far as to accuse the Voting Rights Act as a perpetuation of racial entitlements. Uh, It's been written about whenever a society adopts racial entitlements, it is very difficult to get out of them through the normal political processes. I don't think there is anything to be gained by any senator to vote against continuation of this act. And I am fairly confident it will be reenacted in perpetuity. There are certain districts in the House that are black districts by law just about now. And even the Virginia senators, they have no interest in voting against this. The state government is not their government. And they're going to lose, they're going to lose votes if they do not reenact the Voting Rights Act. Even the name of it is wonderful, the Voting Rights Act. Who is going to vote against that in the future? The more I listen to discussions about the Voting Rights Act, the more I wonder whether people really have a sense of just how hard people of color have had to fight for the right to vote in this country. Before the Civil War, our Constitution did not provide specific protections for voting, nor did federal laws govern voting qualifications. So by the end of the war, would-be black voters in the South faced an array of barriers to voting, like poll taxes and literacy tests. This is John Bowditch in Charleston, South Carolina. Balloting was orderly and unusually heavy today as Negroes voted in a South Carolina Democratic primary for the first time since Reconstruction days. Although unaccustomed to the use of voting machines, most Negroes went through the process in an efficient manner except for one woman who expressed keen disappointment that she couldn't vote for Mr. Truman. This is John Bowditch in Charleston, South Carolina. 
Although these literacy tests were supposedly applicable to both black and white prospective voters, to prove that they had the required level of education to vote, they were disproportionately administered to black voters and kept many from ever being able to cast a ballot. I found an example of one such test to determine voter eligibility that was administered in the state of Louisiana. Though I consider myself to be pretty smart, I second-guessed my intelligence after I couldn't immediately think of a word that looks the same whether it's printed backwards or forwards. So to reassure myself that I'm somewhat bright, I decided to ask a few others whether they were more capable than I was of answering some of these questions. So, Nikki, I want to show you something. Circle the first, first letter of the alphabet in this line. A. Okay. In the first circle below, write the last letter of the first word beginning with L. You look a little... Yeah. Stumped. I am stumped on that one, sorry. Cynthia, I'm going to have you try something for me. Draw a line from circle two to circle five that will pass below circle two and above circle four. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Draw a line from circle two to circle five that will pass below. Do you think this has any bearing on a person's ability to cast a ballot? Of course not, and I'm not so sure that the persons who developed this test were literate themselves. <laughs> it, it looks like it was clearly designed for failure. Just as I had thought, these questions were ambiguous poorly written, and ultimately unnecessary to show that I was capable of reading and casting a ballot. Yet, they were an effective tool of exclusion in many southern states. At the time the act was first adopted, only one-third of blacks of voting age were on the registration rolls in those specially covered states, while two-thirds of eligible whites were registered. But since its passage, black voter registration rates rapidly rose and eventually equaled the rates of whites in many areas. In more recent years, Latino voter participation has skyrocketed. And unlike the time prior to 1965, Black and Latino voters are now more substantially represented in state legislatures and local governing bodies throughout the country. The election of Barack Obama in 2008 was a defining moment in American history. Not only did we elect our nation's first Black president, the United States had one of the highest turnouts ever of black and Latino voters to the polls. If there is anyone out there who still doubts that America is a place where all things are possible, who still wonders if the dream of our founders is alive in our time, who still questions the power of our democracy, tonight is your answer. It's the answer told by lines that stretched around schools and churches in numbers this nation has never seen, by people who waited three hours and four hours, many for the first time in their lives. 
President Obama won by a slim margin in many states that had traditionally voted Republican. And the high turnout of Blacks and Latinos made the difference in crucial swing states like Florida, Ohio, Colorado, and New Mexico. But since 2008, many of the same states that President Obama won have introduced laws that make it much more difficult to register or to actually vote. In fact, many of the same states previously subjected to the preclearance requirement under the Voting Rights Act have aggressively been trying to push through a flurry of voter protection laws. These laws include mandating picture IDs and severely reducing polling hours, all under the guise of eliminating rampant voter fraud. Fraud, by the way, of which a five-year investigation by the Justice Department under President George W. Bush found no significant evidence. So what now? Whatever the outcome, the fact remains that the United States still struggles mightily to shake off the remnants of legally sanctioned discrimination in voting, and the Voting Rights Act has been the most valuable weapon in that fight. But make no mistake, though we've come a long way from the passage of the act, the right to vote in America is as precious, and in some cases, as uncertain as it has ever been. I'm Audra Wilson, and this is Practically Speaking. Practically Speaking is produced by Ayana Contreras.